Hi, and welcome to Hypnotize Me. This is Dr. Elizabeth Bonet. I am so happy to be back with season two of the Hypnotize Me podcast. So I've been running over a year now, and this is episode 65. And I am happy to bring you a whole new season of interviews and research reviews and free hypnosis files, and hopefully a lot more than that. I'm thankful for all of you who subscribe to the podcast and have stuck with me and listened this whole year and send me emails and give me thank yous. I really, really appreciate and value my listeners. So just want to take a moment here to say thank you so much. I absolutely love doing the podcast and look forward to a whole new season of it. This week, I'm interviewing Jeff Warren of the 10% Happier podcast. He contributes a lot to that. He wrote a book along with Dan Harris of ABC News and Carlisle Adler called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. So this is a wonderful book. It came out late in 2017, as you'll hear at the end of the interview. So this is airing in January 2018, so it is already out, and I have a link to it in the show notes as well as the description of today's episode, so you can click right over and look at the book. It is wonderful. So we talk some about the book. We talk about meditation, insomnia, trance states. We have a conversation that goes here and there, but all related to ways to improve your life and conquer fear and decrease anxiety and really rise to a better level of yourself, a better sense of yourself. So let's jump in. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Hypnotize Me podcast. I'm happy you're here. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here myself. I thought you were saying welcome to the uh, audience. Uh, yes, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Elizabeth. Great. I have a lot of questions. So I want to get to both books that you've written. I know you have a new one coming out, Meditation for Fidgety, Fidgety Skeptics with Dan Harris of ABC News. And mm -hmm. that one was quite entertaining. I, I read the, uh, what do you call that? The pre-published copy or something? Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's quite a few changes between that and the final one, but yeah. I bet. I bet. But the, even the original one was pretty entertaining. And then I've also read your whole book, The Head Trip. So that one, I, I picked it up and I was like, oh my God, this is my perfect book. It talks about <laughs> insomnia hypnosis, meditation with a lot of like neurofeedback thrown in there and science. So And lucid dreaming and the hypnagogic and yes. slow wave sleep. And yeah, it was uh, my attempt to, I just was obsessed with consciousness and I wanted to try to understand all the main states of consciousness we experience through day and night. And that was my sort of my book about that. Yeah. I, I found it really fascinating and explained in a different way, some things that I've had knowledge of of a long time, like I've been a lucid dreamer, I don't know, since my um, early 20s, I would say. And then hypnosis for me came much later. And um, that but insomnia, I've been insomniac, like my whole life, basically. Mm. And at some point, decided, 
um, oh, I'll, I'll just enjoy this 4 a.m. wake up. Like it gives me time to meditate, actually, mm-hmm. is the conclusion I came to. And then when I read that in your book about the watch, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like this explains yeah. it. So for yeah. our audience, could you explain your exploration of insomnia and the concept of it in terms of our modern day expectations and you know combining that with really what what we're made for biologically it sounds like and certainly yeah. different cultural expectations of sleep around the world yeah. and historically yeah sure uh, well um I'll see if I can remember. It's been a while since I wrote about that research, but it is something I do still think about a lot. I guess the big takeaway is that sleep is plastic, that it's um, we have this idea that um, sleep has some kind of biological, um, you know, that there's an exact right prescribed amount, that it's the standard thing that the bi- of a biological requirement for, you know, seven and a half hours a night. Um, and that we get it all in one big section and that's how, that's what healthy, normal sleep looks like. But that actually turns out to be a fallacy. Uh, sleep is much more plastic and flexible than, uh, we typically realize and that different cultures approach it in slightly different ways. And in fact, there are quite radically different models of sleep out there. So I'll talk, maybe I'll talk a little bit about those models and about this, the watch, what you were talking about. And then I can say a little bit about, what that suggests around insomnia and those mm-hmm. kinds of issues because it's it's relevant. So in the first part, well, first of all, we know that there are lots of cultures that nap, and that means literally spending a couple hours in the afternoons uh, with a, uh, two hours down in the afternoons. And so, and those cultures typically they sleep much less at night. They sleep you know five or six hours, um, and this is just very loose, rough averages. Um, and then there are other kinds of sleep where people just sort of sleep, catch it, whatever they can throughout a 24-hour period. That's more of a tribal or forager cultural model of sleep. But this this um, thing that I wrote about was bimodal sleep. There's now been quite a bit written about it, but it was based on the work of two different uh, specialists, completely different sides of the uh, human uh, academic enterprises. One was a historian and one was a chronobiologist. The historian was named Roger Eckert, and the biologist was named, the chronobiologist was uh, Thomas Weir. And they both independently discovered, one through looking at old diary journey, journals and, uh, you know, religious chapbooks and all this kind of thing. This is a historian. The other through doing experiments in his lab that, um, like, the, what the historian found was basically that people used to sleep in two sections, it seemed like. This is in sort of medieval Europe, that there's something called first sleep and something called second sleep, and that the great majority of supposedly slumbering humanity was actually awake in the middle of the night in a period of wakefulness that had a slightly different chemical, uh, hormonal balance in the body, uh, which he called the watch. And that this seemed to be, you know, in these longer nights, you know, before the advent of electric lights and artificial lighting and all this, like we would sort of go to bed when it got dark, especially in the winter, and then we'd be asleep for a little bit. And that's mostly when you get our slow wave sleep. And then we'd wake up, usually out of a period of REM sleep, and people would be awake for a few hours. They'd make love. They'd like go milk the cows, <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a natural time to be awake in the night, and then they go back down for a more uh, REM rich part two sleep. And that is exactly what Thomas Ware found when he did an experiment on. He just took a group of volunteers and got them to lay down for 12 hours over the course of a New England uh, month. And just because he was curious, he had one of these rare grants that was purely about not trying to prove anything, but just seeing what would happen. And almost all of his um, subjects moved into this bimodal sleep pattern, 
where they were naturally waking up in the middle of the night and they weren't. And because they were allowed to be just in bed and there was no agenda for the next day, they experienced it as very enjoyable. They had uh, there's a lot of prolactin, particular mm-hmm. hormone uh, connected actually to lactating mums and roosting chickens. Yes. <laughs> And that was really percolating in the in the brains and bodies, and that they were in this nice quiescent state. And he theorized, as did where, as do I, that this is sort of a natural period of because you emerge out of a REM sleep, and it's a period of kind of thinking about your dreams and and reflecting on some of their insights, because of course dreams can be very insightful. And that there's this natural kind of period of half wakefulness, half sleep that we can, if we approach it as uh, a part of a maybe an older form of biology kind of coming through and that is it turns out how people start to sleep often begin to sleep more as they get later in life they get more fragmented sleep um that actually it's healthy it's fine that it's not this idea of one consolidated chunk is just one way to do it and we could begin to enjoy this period and that and that that are just having a different mindset towards it can completely change our relationship to uh being awake at night and that certainly did it did that for me because i also had a lot of insomnia and and when I started to think about it as just, oh, yeah, this is just this older natural pattern. And here's a chance to kind of just chill in my bed and relax and listen to my wife breathe and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just be in there at night. And sometimes I might even get up and go and read a little bit or something. I don't read something any too stimulating, but it just made it um, much more pleasurable. You know, so much of the anxiety of insomnia is thinking about how you're going to be so screwed the next day. Yes, so- it's a suffering is what, and, and people, I, that's a popular request as a hypnotherapist is they want to come in for hypnosis for insomnia. And part of my job is to educate them, I feel like, around, hey, let, let's take the suffering off. Like, yes, I can help you fall asleep better. And the hypnosis actually works really well to do that. But you do have this natural pattern where you wake up sometimes in the middle of the night. And that varies from person to person and with age. Absolutely. So how about we take the suffering off of that instead of trying to like fix that quote unquote? Yeah. I mean, that's such a great way to put it. And it's interesting. You even put it that way because that's very meditation. You know, meditation is all about, it's about equanimity and the way I describe equanimity, actually the way my teacher, this guy Shinzen Young, he says suffering equals pain times resistance. And by, by similarly equanimity equals pain or pleasure times acceptance. So yes. when you're not when you're not fighting with your experience, you most so you may have a knee pain, for example, and that's and it's painful. But then you have all this suffering around it because you're just fighting with the pain and you're tense and you're struggling and you're thinking about it in your head. Yes. All that is what they call the second arrow in Buddhism. It's all secondary suffering that's actually unnecessary. And when you just instead focus on and just accept the experience of insomnia, the experience of discomfort, whatever it is, it's the same with emotional stuff, then you can reduce the suffering. And you just have this much more manageable thing in the center, which is the fact that, yeah, you're awake, or yeah, you're uncomfortable. But when you don't fight with it, when you accept it, wow, does it ever get a lot Yes. I When I first heard Shenzhen Young's um, Science of Enlightenment. Oh, cool. Yeah, this was... It has to be like 10 years ago. I had broken my tailbone and I couldn't, I'm riding along in the car on like a donut pillow, you know, <laughs> suffering, right? And I, yeah. I listened to his, uh, it was on audio at that point, is like on iTunes where I downloaded it. And it was incredible, the shift in the thinking in terms of 
that suffering. He explains it so well. And he also explains meditation as part of being able to take that off. One of my questions actually is how you got connected with Shenzhen Young, because he's been mm-hmm. so influential in my life from afar, but I know he's he's one of your meditation teachers. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I had no idea that you knew uh, Shenzhen or you knew his work. That that's, makes me happy. I'm glad. I'm glad for your listeners who haven't heard or haven't heard of him. Um, he has a really great audio series called The Science of Enlightenment. He has a book out now of the same title. I actually like the audio better. It was an earlier spunky version of Shenzhen. And, um, and so anyway, he, he's a very interesting kind of hybrid uh, Western teacher. He was born in Los Angeles and spent uh, a bunch of time as a monk in Japan. And he's really uh, created his own sort of system of mindfulness that's very rigorous and draws actually on the three traditions of Buddhism, the um, insight tradition from Purta Theravada, from the Zen tradition, and also from a little bit of the um, of Adriana, like uh, you know, uh, in particular Japanese Vajrayana, the Tibetan vehicle. So he's really an integrator and a very interesting guy, but he's sort of a super nerd scientist who uses super nerd science brain to describe phenomenology, describe the experience of consciousness, the experience of how we are from moment to moment, the different states we move into. And I had just written a book about Head Trip called Head Trip. And so I was obsessed with the subject, you know, and I was looking for a meditation teacher that had that kind of precision. I couldn't find anyone I mean, I found good teachers who were wonderful mm-hmm. and helpful, but I was really into the super nerdy end of it. And just by quick, complete coincidence, a friend of mine actually recommended that series. And I listened to it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is my dude. And uh, yeah. so I got hold of him. And it turns out he actually does two retreats a year in Canada, which is, you know, for me, it was a bonus because I live in Toronto. Um, and I went yes. and just going to the retreat was even so in his talks, he gives you what's in, in Buddhism or in contemplative world, they would call the view, a kind of big, broad, intelligent, rich framework of how this stuff works. And then on his retreats, you get the techniques. So the actual practical interventions, and they mm-hmm. were just as nerdy and, um, interesting from a point of view of noticing how different aspects of consciousness work. His big emphasis is, is, on the skills you're learning within mindfulness, that mindfulness is sort of a general term, but actually you can break it down to be very specific, that you're building concentration, and this is what concentration feels like. You're building equanimity, and this is what equanimity feels like. You're building clarity, and that's mm-hmm. what that feels like. So so he really blew it all up for me. And that was back in 2008, I think, when I first encountered him. And then I just really was a student for, I still am, but really listened hard to how he did things and I really had I mean I I literally I probably have 50 60 70 hours of just one-on-one interviews I've done with him where I'm like asking him detailed questions about this exact moment or what is this or what or what is this kind of awakening or like trying to really understand how all that deep end shit works because people always talk about that stuff but they I'm like well what is it? I want to get specific so just listening to him and then transcribing laboriously our talks I feel like I got a real transmission in sort of how his brain works and um so yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. So I highly, if people are interested, they could check out his YouTube channel, Shenzhen Young. He's getting a little older mm-hmm. now and he's got his big nerdy system. The thing you got to realize with him is it's like, there's so much gold, but there's a lot of also repetition. And as is the case, uh, mm-hmm. you just have to be patient and you'll, you'll see what, what I'm talking about. Well, I think that comes through in the new book that you wrote. So the head trip, you know, it's almost like I see you go on this journey on the head trip of the the insomnia and the sleep stuff and then 
hypnosis. At some point, you met with Spiegel, who is famous for like the Spiegel mm-hmm. eye roll test. And then it's like you landed on meditation. And then obviously, you're now a very well-respected meditation teacher, and you run these uh, whole center Right? And oh, a, a group, a meditation so, group called the Consciousness Explorers Club. Yeah, yeah. We, we meet on Monday nights. We're pretty modest. But we have a website with like uh, meditations and overview. Or I'm trying to get community resources up there so, so other people can use the, the, our resources wherever you are. Yeah, it really sounds wonderful. And then how we connect is I heard you on the 10% Happier podcast with Dan Harris. And, but my point in, in talking about that is that it's like you became this teacher out of that mm-hmm. journey. And it comes through in the new book that you wrote with Dan Harris. It's, it's really wonderful. The exercises there, I find very accessible. So I had a client in my office the other day who was talking about meditation, and she has two small kids. And she's like, I, I really want to make 30 minutes to meditate. And I was like, oh, my God, like 30 minutes. Like, who has 30 minutes? Totally. <laughs> I mean, some people do. But I was like, nobody has 30 minutes with a two-year-old running around. Like, why don't you try a one-minute or a five-minute, so which is often what, yeah, what you're recommending in the book. And what I found interesting, too, is there is this part in it where you say um, happiness is a skill, mm-hmm. right? And sanity is a skill. And meditation helps you mm-hmm. get there, like helps build that mm-hmm. skill. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, that that really literally is the story of the past um, 15 years of my life that I, I finished researching Head Trip sort of in 2004. It took a few years for it to come out. It came out in the U.S., but it never came out in paperback. So it's still, you can still find it on Amazon and things, but it was sort of, it's become a kind of cult book. But the book was really a lot also, in addition to being about consciousness and trying to, how it works, and it was also me trying to regulate myself. Like I was a very dysregulated, uh, ADD, kind of all over the map person. And I still am in some ways. Um, And I had a lot of suffering, a lot of mental and emotional suffering. And I really spent that in the years since I finished researching Head Trip. And now those years have been spent. I haven't written any books. You know, I I really went deep into meditation and and not just meditation, other kind of uh, modalities and techniques to try to see how I can you know, uh, address this dysregulation. And then, and I got, at some point it shifted and I got really motivated to try to help other people. Um, I mean, I've always been, but that it really kicks in, you know, when you start to figure out things that work, you get really motivated to try to help other people. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened. And then I got encouraged by, uh, Shinzen to actually teach meditation. I never had a, a thought about it or was interested, but just cause I was good at explaining stuff. So I started doing that. And the key with that is it's not a big deal. If you think about it as just what's really helpful in, in a quote teacher is just teaching where you're at. Mm-hmm. Like this is what I've, these are what I've dealt with. This is what's helped. You're just honest about that. And then maybe there's some general stuff you can talk about too, but that in itself is the most helpful thing. And I think in that way we can all be, um, you know, we're all teachers in a way where we all have something to teach in the sense that we can be honest about our challenges. And then in that honesty, we can help people. And what I discovered sort of in that, and it's sort of a follow through from head trip was that the brain is, and the mind are trainable. And so this is now totally accepted. The neuroplasticity mm-hmm. revolution is still like, it's just accepted as being a no yes, brainer now. Like the brain scans um, really support this, that the technology yeah. that we have these days, the MRIs and all of that detail supports that. Yeah, the brain is very plastic. When you look at an actual brain, a living brain, 
Um, it's just like a, it's, it's less like an object than it is like a kind of slime field. It's very mushy and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just this moving blob that's constantly remaking new connections. And, and what meditation is, is the way I think of it is it's, it's training how you want to exist. You know, there's a mm. quote by Aristotle, you are what you repeatedly do that whatever habits of our own, of attention, habits of mind, habits of heart, whatever we repeat become our character and of, over time. But the, and that's the sort of like scary part of it. The good news is you can make adjustments to that. I mean, you can't really, I don't think, change the fundamental nature of, of your personality, but I think you can make changes to some of your habits. Absolutely. Um, and there's even bigger changes you can make that the contemplative scene points to. Um, so when you start thinking about things in that way, um, you know, the sanity part is really about, it's a lot about the equanimity part and about the clarity part. It's about starting to see these typical habits of mind and patterns that you get into and realizing that these are actually things you can track. You can follow the inner talk, the inner, uh, imagery, the, the body sensations without being inside them. And that, that to me is the shift from trance to perspective so uh, i think yeah. actually hypnosis is the fundamental what is a huge key to understanding how this works like when we're hypnotized life hypnotizes us mm-hmm. we get our history hypnotizes us our conditioning hypnotize we get into these trances uh, and thinking that this is the only way things can be this pattern of behavior this way of knowing but a, a meditation and insight practice teaches us that we can actually notice it open to that experience and pop out of it and from that wider place, a place of more sanity, begin to make our decisions and our choices. And that really is what it means to, to me to come into sanity. It, it's the combination of clarity. Uh, the equanimity is the opening to the pattern, letting it be there, not fighting with it. There's a concentration piece, too. These qualities allow us to pop into this more same perspective. It's work. Mm-hmm. You're constantly getting pulled into the trances again. And, um, and, and habits that were once healthy over time may become can become unhealthy, you know, so you have to stay sort of vigilant, but that's the awareness piece. And, and I think, you know, the, the news is really exciting. It's very empowering and meditation. It can be a, a key part to that. Yes. You're saying like, um, we do go into these trance states like throughout our day, like the, the science on that is pretty clear as well. So some of them are the negative trance state, quote unquote negative, you know, we don't really have to qualify it as that, but it's, these habits and patterns that we get into where all of a sudden we're going along and we're thinking that same obsessive thought, right? Or we're doing the same thing or we get caught in that thought pattern of, oh my gosh, I'm going to go home and what am I going to make for dinner? And the kids are going to be unhappy and, you know, all this stuff. And you're saying meditation, mindfulness is a skill, a way to use that tool to pop us out of that quote-unquote negative trance those habits those patterns right and uh, uh, so i agree it could be used both ways like you can you can use the positive side of hypnosis too to help you make that jump to help you make that transfer mm -hmm. but there's absolutely that other side of we're in trance state anyway what why don't we go in and do some of the good stuff in there absolutely mindfulness and meditation and and i want to say i want to emphasize like Trance is beautiful. Trance is a gift. Trance can get us into trouble in the way that we just described and when we're in these patterns that are no longer serving us or causing suffering. But at the same time, the capacity mm-hmm. to lose yourself in music, to lose yourself in a good novel or in movement yes. or in relationship with a person, like to be really absorbed in that way. 
those are also trances and they're and they're part of the that's an amazing thing that we have about being human so i think really what i'm interested in is flexibility to be able to move in and out of our trances uh but have some autonomy around whether that's something we want to do oh this is something i do want to do and then you commit yourself to it fully and then you can pop out to this place of kind of making a new decision and then you make your decision from there and you can go back in you know yeah sort of like being a you know, it's yes. like you can be under the water, you know, and just cruising around. And dive down and, and then dive up. up and and dive you get the down. bird's eye view, what's going on. Okay, you know, it's kind of like that. Right. <laughs> right. So I have a follow-up question to something you said earlier. I also wanted to to ask you about some of the statement you just made in terms of being able to pop out of that. Because one of the funniest parts of the book that I found, and it's this very tiny part, but it was this... Um, no fear practice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> I thought was fantastic. Yeah. Of, I think the part in the book, and hopefully this is the state in the version that's going to be published, is you and Dan are sitting in like a mall mm-hmm. in, I think it's California or something. And the fear starts of like, oh, my gosh, nobody's going to want to talk to us and this. And you say, okay, well, this is, this is a great opportunity to... I think you say be humiliated or something like that, like, (laughs) you know, to practice stepping into that and let's go into our no fear practice. So Mm -hmm. can you just tell me how you came up with the no fear practice? Like, was it just a divine inspiration at one moment? I try to remember where it came from. It's actually a practice I do a lot. Uh, because I've had those experiences. Um, so it, it's a top-down practice. So there's kind of a distinction between bottom-up. I don't talk about this in the book, but I talk about it on the 10% Happier app, you know, where I do stuff. There's mm-hmm. I did this stick between top-down and bottom-up practices. Like a bottom-up practice is like you're slowly building up concentration by focusing on the breath, or you're trying to build up clarity by noticing what's going on in your experience. And it's sort of this slow building towards this eventual state of having whatever you want to call it, awakening or being more available in your life. Uh, A top-down practice basically says, no, we're going to go right there right now. You're just going to, it's more of a cognitive thing where you're going to reframe your experience and think, well, what if this were true? And you're just going to, and then you just pretend it is and live from that place. And it's very, very powerful. Our top-down hypnosis is another way that shows that as well. Our top-down sets, our experiential sets can, uh, can reframe how we're experiencing things that you just make the decision. So I, I do this all the time. If I'm in a situation where I feel nervous or uncomfortable, I'll just make the decision like, what if fear didn't exist right now? Yeah, it sounds so, it sounds so <laughs> ridiculous because I'm not saying that it, it, no, it, sounds it doesn't wonderful, work, actually. You know, sometimes like, it's like, okay, like I'm just going to, like, uh, what if I could just actually step into a place where there's of no fear? And it's usually, I can, and I can just notice the fear as just a small part of my experience or, I mean, I say fear, I mean, you know, anxiety mm. or discomfort or self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. Usually in an in insight way or mindfulness way, if you can notice the sensations of it, then you're not in it. And so you've already popped out a little bit. So this is like that, but even more. It's sort of having the set of like, it's similar to what they call a practice enlightenment in, in Soto Zen. They say, instead of like trying to get enlightened, let's just pretend we already are enlightened. That's basically Soto Zen. Mm-hmm. And so they just sit, they just sit and meditate <laughs> as if they're already enlightened. And actually, guess what? It actually ends up working in terms of like bringing those qualities into their experience, if you want to put it that way. So that's mm-hmm. what we did there, and and I've had experiences like dr- quite dramatic ones of of popping out so much that it was like, 
that was it. I could just see how, from that other place, how fear, in a, way, in a way, was actually an option. It's actually a choice. I always heard people say that, and I thought that sounds so that annoys me because it's like when you got all this fear <laughs> coursing through your body, it's not so easy yes. to kind of pop out of it. But there is a practice there that works, and when you are popped out of it, you can see how there. It's just that you just don't know the mechanism for how to do it. That's the thing. It's like. And that's uh, the case with yes. all these practices. You know, that's the case with enlightenment itself or awakening or whatever you want to talk about. What they often say within an Advaita tradition is that you're already there. It's just a case of not kind of believing it or knowing it. And it's just this tiny little orientation, reorientation you make in your set that helps you connect to that. But you think it's something insurmountable or huge. And, and we're kind of in the middle of a paradox here because at the same time, we, we're saying that we slowly have to build up these qualities and habits of mind and that it's a training and the mind and brain is plastic and yes. we're building up. But we're also saying that it's, it's possible to go immediately there. And that has to do with the mind itself, which is, which is deeply mysterious, which isn't just constrained to the brain, probably. It has its own thing. And somehow, you know, we have to live inside this paradox. And it's the great challenge and the great freedom, you know. Yes. Well, I, I see it as... This side, and you know, on my left hand is the meditation and the practice and the mindfulness and that um, bottom-up stuff that you're talking about, which helps you get to the top-down side. So it helps you have that experience of, I'm just going to shift here. Like, what if I really pretended that this was excitement instead of anxiety and jump into that? And how would I act differently? Or how would I place that fear away? It is a conundrum because once you've had that experience, you're like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. I can do this mm -hmm. again. But when you're trying to teach someone or convince someone or you know hypnotize someone in some sense of that that's a possibility and they haven't had that experience, it's often very difficult. They're like, no, the fear is just sitting there on top of me like this huge animal and I, I, you know, I, I can't toss it off. So... It's like the practices go together. This gives you the ability to do that Absolutely. sometimes. Sometimes you can just yeah, toss it off. You're, you're right. They work beautifully together. And I think that's a really insightful statement. Like, And I think actually in some of the most, when you look at the more sophisticated practices out there, like traditionally like Tibetan practices, they actually have a strong bottom-up and a strong top-down component, like Mala Mudra. It's mm -hmm. like they have a, or a Zogchen. They have a kind of non-dual piece that they do where they're just about reframing experience and connecting to your the actual freedom of the moment but then they also of course have a training and especially a training in ethics and you know and in loving kindness and those things because yes. it's like when you get free you want to be you want to make sure you're you're you, you, you want to make sure that you're free in the right way in a way you're a kind of free person yeah. you want to be around you know you're a more loving free person you're more as opposed to like more <laughs> sour right. and angry i mean i mean that's a bit of an exaggeration but you know those yeah. uh, awakening does lead to in theory more positive you know affect and things like that too but but there is a dual part to it there yes so i have a, another question and then we'll wrap up one question I had is that you went through neurofeedback training for your ADHD, but I think that was before you really discovered meditation and how effective it was. So would you say that the meditation is just as effective as that, or is it something that you feel like is a supplemental tool? It, it's The research on it is absolutely yeah. fascinating, the neurofeedback yeah. for the training the brain states for ADHD and being able to focus. So I am curious about your yeah, experience. Yeah, you know, there. I wish it's a hard question for me to answer 
for a few reasons. One of which is I don't feel like my I got the maybe the most representative neurofeedback experience. Like I go I talk about it in the book, the group I was with were good, but they had a, tra- a new trainer who was working with me, and it turned out like three quarters of the way through my neurofeedback that we were training up the wrong signal. So I don't really. Right, yeah, I so I don't that. really feel like I got I, it. Didn't it didn't help my ADD very much? But that I don't think that necessarily means it's representative because it does help a lot of people, especially kids. So I feel like I would have to almost do it again with a really good, and it might well be a faster way to make. I mean, there's no question that getting direct feedback on your meditative state can accelerate and deepen the way you can get into it. And I think a lot of meditators just okay. sit and, and mind wander and just, you know, they're just daydreaming and they're not really meditating and they're probably not doing themselves much good. Uh, so having the feedback of a teacher is kind of like uh, having a neurofeedback device uh, or having a clear idea of what you're doing. But even saying that, there's so many kinds of meditation and including meditations that are about just sitting and really doing nothing. So I guess the way I think about the ADD is I think meditation can help. And I think things like neurofeedback can help. I think about an ocean and, you know, there's the deep swells of the ocean and then there's like the wavelets on the deep swells. I think it can help a lot Mm -hmm. with the wavelets uh, and help you learn to pay a little bit better attention. And it can certainly help you notice when you're getting down on yourself for being ADD or this, that, all the second arrow suffering that we talked about earlier. But can it really affect the deep swells uh, of your, that you have this fundamentally distractible character? I think for some people, it probably can. For me, it hasn't yet. And I've been at it mm-hmm. a while. But again, I, I think it's very individual. And I think that the research says we just don't know yet. You know, the research says that it seems to be promising in certain of these ways. Well, it's sort of one of those things you just kind of kind of do it for yourself. I mean, I do want to write a book about ADD and meditation in the mind and these things because I think uh, just to consolidate some of my experience and, and some of the things I've heard from other people and some of the research that's out there. But my takeaway always comes mm-hmm. down to you have to do these practices yourself and and not look to some ideal, but what is really going on in this practice and what seems to be helping. And, and when it comes to something like ADD, things like diet and routine and structure and movement are so fundamental even more i think fundamental than a than a meditation intervention personally so um mm-hmm. so yeah that's a little bit about that like i i'm still learning you know my ad add is as bad as it ever was in some ways but my suffering around it is not and that's a big difference yes okay so you feel like the all these different techniques that you've used and methods and including meditation have taken some of the suffering oh, off big of time. it and any you know, and also your your meditation practice goes through phases. So early on in my practice, I actually got very concentrated and it did help with my ADD. It seemed like a lot. But then I went through a phase that was more challenging. It's almost like you pull the lid off stuff and things start coming up and then you're Mm -hmm. you're kind of dysregulated a little bit again. But you work through that and then you're at a deeper level of stability. So there's this sort of um, cyclical nature of a of a, of a sitting practice. So that cyclical nature goes, you know, well, it goes in cycles, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You're saying also, it, it almost sounds like a spiral. So it doesn't just go in cycles, it goes deeper. Yeah. Like you have deeper discoveries that come up and, and help you regulate in different yeah, ways. Yeah, that's been my experience. And that, that sort of, that model is called the progress of insight. It's uh, kind of a way, a mm. framework for thinking about uh, mindfulness progress. And it's definitely been my insight and a lot of other people that I know that there's that kind of round and round. 
uh, I mean, e even in more generally in contemplative practice, it's like different terrains. You know, you're going to have times when things are really great and uh, stuff's really working. And then you're going to have times when things are more challenging and the things that used to work don't work anymore. And there's a period of like having to like mm -hmm. try something new. And that's just, that to me is a, that's actually like a standard pattern in life, you know? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I I've been meditating close to 20 years Oh wow! or so. Yeah. Coming up on, well, coming up on 30 years wow. and definitely that's a lot of meditating. It, yeah. It is. The first one I picked up was like three pillars of Zen just by oh. complete coincidence. Had no idea it was really a standard and, you know, quote unquote in the field. But my point there is absolutely changed over the years and changed depending on what I'm going through. So if I'm in a real crisis or a, a very anxious state, that practice is very different than when everything is pretty much even keel. Yeah. So, and it's different at, at 4 a.m. when I'm lying in bed awake yeah. than it is when I, I'm sitting at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon or 8 a.m. or whatever that more wakeful state is. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd agree with you there. There's... There's no way for it to stay the same, really, mm. when you think about us as human beings changing throughout our lives. The practice changes with us. Yeah, but so, but again, to come because since there's always a paradox, it's like so we know that's true, and yet at the same time, there's a sense in which there is your baseline level of availability to your life. Uh, those things can deepen progressively, and there is such a thing as as coming more fully into your life is there is such a thing as waking up to your life there there is such a thing as beginning to find a place to stand in outside of your immediate experience that actually gives you kind of paradoxically more of a stance in that experience more of stability in that experience and that so that arc that mysticism and contemplative traditions yes. uh, describe is a real arc you know it's no it's no joke uh it's for real it's just that we're trying to figure out in the 21st century, what, what is going on there? You know, what, what, yeah, what <laughs> yes. part of Israel, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, at least that's right. what I'm interested in. Yeah. What part is illusion? Yeah, right. Illusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And when is the book due out? The new one? Oh, it's coming out, uh, December 26th. So in a couple weeks, um, Wonderful. And it's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. It's Big Dan Harris, and there's a little tiny Jeff Warren, <laughs> Harley Adler who, as well, who's our our uh, our co-navigator. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, people like it. I got a website, and you know, if check out the CEC, the Consciousness Explorers Club at CECmeditate.com. Okay. It's just a good little fun community of meditators with free practices you can listen to. And I'm trying to get together this resources together for community practice so people can start up their own community practice groups around the world like there'll be like a free download you can just you know use it as a wonderful. model want, that kind of stuff yes wonderful and i'll put all of those links in the show notes as well so that people can easily access them great all right have a wonderful day thanks elizabeth nice to talk to you
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I work all over the world. So please feel free to see more about me at drlizhypnosis.com. That's D-R-L-I-Z hypnosis.com. You can also join the newsletter there and get some free hypnosis downloads that you can listen to at any time. You'll also get some great content. I've written a newsletter for well over 10 years, so I'm doing something right. Finally, if you like the podcast, tell a friend about it so that more and more people learn about hypnosis and how it can be helpful for their life. Have a wonderful week. Peace.